Hello everybody and welcome to a podcast of Biblical Proportions. Episode 42, The Maccabean Coincidence. Our story for this episode starts in 175 BCE. When a new evil king arose over the Seleucid Empire. His name would ring a bell as a supervillain to every Hebrew man, woman, or child. Antiochus, formerly known as Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. But he was so evil that he was sometimes derided by his contemporaries as Antiochus, not Epiphanes, but Epimanes, which means the mad. And for those who don't remember, that Antiochus is the villain in Hanukkah. One of the top villains in Hebrew history. Antiochus turned on the Hebrews just like that. And it initiated an unprecedented campaign of religious persecution that the world has never seen. It was savage. But it didn't start all out savage right away. No, no, no. Oddly enough, it started with the evil king sending a tax collector. But then he hit them with a series of unbelievably evil decrees, which culminated with a genocide of Hebrew baby boys. The account of these historical events is the story that in the previous episode, my storyology machine found as identical to the frustrating tale of Moses killing an Egyptian man, quarreling with a quarrelsome Hebrew, and fleeing as a fugitive to Midian. In fact, if you ask the machine, it will tell you that these are not two identical stories, but one story written in two different genres. One time written as a historical account, and one time written as a piece of literature. First comes the historical account, then comes the Hollywood version. And as these things go, the historical account is two chapters long. The movie version, just the highlights, shortened to 12 verses long. We know where the piece of literature is. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. As for the historical account, it is recorded in one of the most admired historical books from the ancient world. 1 Maccabees. The series of events that we will talk about in this episode would catapult the Hebrews into civil war and revolution, otherwise known as the Maccabean Revolt. I think the Maccabean Revolution might even be more fitting a description. If the machine is right and both stories are one, then that would mean that once we go over this story in one Maccabees, everything in the Moses murder quarrel Midian story 
that was weird, nonsensical, absurd, or just off. All of that would suddenly, magically, be crystal clear. And all the problems that we identified in the last episode will be solved to our complete satisfaction. Because this Toriology machine comes with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. And it is adamant that these two stories are one. Naturally, I came to the inescapable conclusion that this is a coincidence. A very big coincidence. A Maccabean coincidence. Not the sort of coincidence that you think of someone and then run into them in the street. We're talking about a happenstance of biblical proportions. And I want to dedicate this episode to prove to you it is nothing more than that. Let's look at this like a criminal trial and put the bar at beyond reasonable doubt. This has to be proven beyond reasonable doubt. Is that even possible? I mean, it's been 2,000 years. Let's dive in. Hi everybody, this is Gil. Thank you for listening. I want to thank Peter, Anne and Megan for joining our tribe on patreon.com slash biblicalproportions. Thank you and welcome. First of all, I want us all to participate in a mass experiment. I encourage each and every one of you to try and reproduce this coincidence at home. Ask a friend to write a story, any story. While you write a story separately and send it to them at the same time. If your two stories are absolutely identical, congratulations, you have achieved a Maccabean coincidence. If the stories are not identical, then try again. (laughs) Anyway, let's get back to business. Since we started the season of Exodus, I repeatedly emphasized how we should read Exodus in the context of the Hebrew Babylonian exile. The hawkish Hebrews who lost everything to the evil king Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed their land, their capital, and their temple. That was the context that we've been talking about. These events occurred roughly between 600 and 550 BCE. But now, the storyology machine has sent us to a much later date, that we have yet to visit on this podcast. We are now in the 100s BCE. What happened between the Babylonian exile and the Maccabean revolution? So first came the Babylonians, 50 years later came the Persians. 200 years later came the Hellenists. The little plot of land we're focusing on was first part of the Hellenistic Ptolemaic Empire and then part of the Hellenistic Seleucid Empire. It is under the Seleucids that the Maccabean Revolution erupted. And its conclusion would be an independent Hebrew state for the first time since the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and Judah 
and for the last time for 2,000 years. And like so many other revolutions in history, the Maccabean Revolution too has a specific, iconic event that triggered it all. All revolutions have their underlying socio-political reasons and often all that takes is a match to light a fire that cannot be extinguished. For the French in 1789, it was the storming of the Bastille in Paris. For the Tunisians in 2010, it was a merchant who lit himself on fire who brought about the Arab Spring. And for the Hebrews, living under the Seleucid yoke, that event was Matityahu HaKohen, Matithias, the priest, who stepped out to his people, killed the king's man, killed the disloyal Hebrew, and fled as a fugitive to the desolate parts of Modian, Modin. <laughs> this super uber dramatic chain of events is expertly described in the book of 1 Maccabees, chapters 1 and 2. It is the official version of the events from a Maccabean perspective. And it was written at least 40 years after the events in question. It is fantastic. Let's go over it. We go back to our Maccabean story when the evil king Antiochus formally issued a list of evil decrees known in Hebrew as Hagzerot. It's literally translated to the decrees, but a decree is neutral. Hagzerot means the evil decrees. This is the core of the beef the Maccabees had with Antiochus and the Seleucids. First, he barred all Hebrews from worshipping in their Jerusalem temple. Then he had pigs sacrificed in that Jerusalem temple to desecrate that temple. And he desecrated temples throughout Judea. He did not let the Hebrews venerate their Shabbat and their holidays properly. In fact, he made them break their Shabbat laws and their Torah laws. He did not let them eat their kosher food. He banned the Bible. He burned every copy that he could find. And if you were found with a copy, the penalty was death. Then he banned circumcision. But that's only one half of the decree. The other half was rounding out all of the Hebrew babies circumcised and putting them to death. But killing them wasn't evil enough for the evil king Antiochus. No, 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 no. So here both a trigger alert is needed and I think a fake news alert is needed. But that's for the next episode. Regardless, this is going to be harsh. One Maccabees has him burning the babies alive or hanging them 
by their mother's necks. I repeat, when they hanged the little baby boys, they tied the noose to their little necks, and on the other end, they tied the noose to their mother's necks, killing their mothers and their entire families. So this is <laughs> the context for what's going to happen in 167 BCE, when a hero finally stood up to the evil king. And to his disloyal Hebrew brothers. Ugh. The Hebrew population in Judea was back then split along the same lines. It was <laughs> that we have gotten to know and love in the past few episodes. The hawks on the one hand, pragmatists on the other. And our hero who stood up to the king, he hated the pragmatists. He despised them. They were known at the time as Hellenizers. Mityavnim. That's a derogatory term. Hellenizers sound a little bit neutral. Mityavnim. Just the sound of that word and all the connotations that I have in my mind from Jewish folklore. Hearing mityavnim just makes me want to throw up in my mouth. These Hellenizers, like so many pragmatic communities throughout history, had a cosmopolitan perspective. And they fused some of their older traditions with Hellenistic traditions. For example, many of them did not have their baby boys circumcised. They wanted to train in the Jerusalem gymnasium in nude, like the Hellenists, without standing out. They prayed to other gods as well, and lived in many ways as Hellenists of the Hebrew faith. So our hawkish hero detested them. One day Matityahu, the son of Yohanan, son of Shimon, came out from Jerusalem to one of the nearby towns called Mudin. He had his five sons with him, the most famous of which is Yehuda HaMakabi, Judah the Maccabee, or Judah the Hammer. These weren't meek Hebrews silently going to exile or pliantly accepting oppression. Nah, nah, nah. This was a new breed of Hebrews, armed with the stories of the Torah and the book of Joshua. They didn't wait for Yahweh to tell them what to do. They did what had to be done themselves. These were men of action. And they will soon start a violent holy war against their Hellenized brethren. So one day in 167 BCE, the evil king sent an official 
to Modin. He wanted to force its residents to desecrate their temple by worshipping deities other than Yahweh. Since Matityahu, our hero, was the most respected man in Modin, the king's man, Ishamelech, implored him to desecrate <laughs> the temple himself. He was a priest, Matityahu. He wanted him to show the other hardline hawks to follow suit and not be so rebellious and protective of their rituals and traditions. Nah. In return, the evil king promised Matityahu fame and fortune. Matityahu replied with a stirring speech that is basically a biblical way to plainly say fuck the king. And then all hell broke loose. One of these disloyal Hebrews stepped forward to desecrate the temple. Now let me read. When Matityahu saw it, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred. He gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and slaughtered the Hebrew on the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's man who was forcing them to sacrifice and he tore down the altar. Thus, Matityahu burned with zeal for the law, for the Torah, just as Pinchas did against Zimri, son of Salu. That's a direct reference to a story from Numbers. And just imagine the scene. I see him jumping on a horse. People are killing Hellenized Hebrews. And he's crying out. Let everyone who is zealous for the Torah and supports our covenant with God come with me. The revolution has begun. Knowing that he was a murderer in the eye of the evil king and that he was now a fugitive, Matityahu and his sons fled to the uninhabited parts of Modian. They would fight in the hills and towns and they would never surrender. So the very, very dramatic story we've just gone over is the official Maccabean version of events, their storming of the Bastille, their Boston Tea Party. Written by the Maccabean historian in the book that we know today as one Maccabees. Undoubtedly, it was among the most famous stories in their day, if not the most famous among them. Especially considering that the Maccabean historian wrote this about 40 years after the events and that Matityahu's actions contributed to the reality that the Maccabean historian was living in. The golden age of the Maccabees, an independent Hebrew kingdom. This is the matching story to everything our second editor wrote 
up to where we are in chapter 2 of Exodus. Let's get back to it now and see if it is somehow not frustrating and incomprehensible anymore. First, let me refresh our memories with the general outline that comes out when you read all of our second editor's verses in one sequence as one story. And then we'll go one verse at a time and see if the storyology machine has been over-promising results it can't deliver. Because remember, the bar is beyond reasonable doubt. Don't be fooled by the machine beyond reasonable doubt. So here's the outline of the story. A new evil king arose over Egypt. And to subjugate the Hebrews, he sent them tax collectors. He then enslaved them out of fear they would grow stronger than Egypt and might join their enemies in case of war. But the Hebrews persisted. He then initiated a mass murder of male Hebrew babies. And then Moses comes out to his brothers, kills an Egyptian man, quarrels with a disloyal Hebrew, and flees as a fugitive to Midian. Oh my god, we're going to lose to a machine. <sighs> okay, but not all hope is lost. Let's go over the story, verse by verse. I want it to be clearly Maccabean 100% of the way. I want to see their righteous anger. I want to see their violence. I want to see their zeal. And I want to see their hatred for their disloyal brethren. First, let's start with our second editor's story from Exodus chapter 1. This is verses 6 and 8 to 12. And remember... This is the Hollywood version of the historical events, the Maccabean Hollywood version. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Who did not know Joseph? We use it symbolically today. It begs to be symbolic. And it's actually even symbolic here because according to the story, Joseph already died hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And in the Maccabean story, <laughs> persecution goes from zero prior to the new evil king arising to 100% persecution after the rising of the evil king. So the Egyptian king is afraid of the numerous and powerful Hebrews because if war breaks out, he's afraid they will join his enemies. Totally nonsensical, if a pharaoh tells that to his people. <laughs> but perfectly <laughs> makes perfect sense if this is <laughs> what Antiochus is thinking. The Hebrew immigrants in Egypt were not more and mightier than the Egyptians at any point in time. The Maccabees in Judea were more and mightier than the Seleucids. But it is the reason for the turn of the evil king that is as Maccabean as it can be. The Seleucids should worry that if a war breaks out, they will join their enemies and fight against them. 
the Maccabees are proud <laughs> of having worked with the enemy of the Seleucids, the Romans. And they also, the Maccabees also worked very, very hard to improve their relations with their other enemy of the Seleucids, the Ptolemies of Egypt. Okay, this is not going well at all. Then <laughs> they sent tax collectors to afflict the Hebrews even further with burdens. So doesn't make any sense at all that the <laughs> Pharaoh would send a tax collector to tax <laughs> slaves. <laughs> Do the slaves uh, get money and property that you can tax later? Aren't they slaves? Doesn't make any sense. Never made any sense to anyone. So scholars decided that it actually means a taskmaster. He sent taskmasters. Okay. But literally, <laughs> the words, sarei misim, sarei, chiefs, generals, officials, ministers, misim, taxes. <laughs> tax minister, tax collector, tax official. So maybe there was a double meaning here. A tax collector and also a taskmaster. Antiochus sends a tax collector. Sarmisim. But scholars have pointed out that the story doesn't make sense that this tax collector is a tax collector. Those same two words, Sarmisim, should be read differently. Sarmisiam. Messiah is an area in Anatolia. Sarei, general, meaning a general of mercenaries. This is what the king actually sent. A tax collector and a general of mercenaries. So this is 200% <laughs> fits the original meaning and also there's a double meaning in it. Twice a double meaning. Okay, amazing. <laughs> and if you're starting to feel confused about where does one of these stories end and the other begin and they kind of fuse together, then yes, this is exactly how it's intended to be. It means it's working. And the Maccabean coincidences ensue. In both stories, the Hebrew go through the same emotional journey simultaneously. They are disheartened at the same time, they persist at the same time, and then they will fight back at the same time. And in between, the Egyptians on one hand and the Seleucids on the other are really, really angry at the Hebrews at the exact same place, at the exact same time in both stories. And here at this point of the story, <laughs> in both stories, there's a genocide of male Hebrew babies. In the next episode, I'll compare the two accounts of the male Hebrew baby genocide. And now we finally get to Moses fighting back against the oppressive evil regime. What event was the match that lit the fire inside Moses? This is how it reads as a Maccabean propaganda. Format it Yahoo. 
So he went out to his brethren, looked on their burdens. Oh, he looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian man hitting a Hebrew, one of his brothers. Oh, he just cared about his brothers. Forget about the murderous rampage he did against the Hellenistic Hebrews. Now, now, let's focus on the brotherly motivation. He looked on their burdens. And this is when he sees the Egyptian man beating the Hebrew. And he makes sure no one is watching and he kills the Egyptian man and he buries him in the sand. Such a decisive and Maccabean Moses. Acting first, thinking later. God does not ignite the revolution. A singular hero does. This is not only supremely Maccabean, but ironically it's also supremely Hellenistic. Who's the Hellenizer now? Hey, Matityahu. And because both of these stories are actually about Matityahu's revolutionary actions that started against the king's man, Ishamelech, the king's emissary, but literally the king's man, Ishamelech, this is why the revolution in Exodus doesn't start with God announcing the revolution or why it doesn't start with Moses beating an Egyptian soldier it has to start with Moses beating an Egyptian man because it has to mirror Matityahu starting the revolution by killing the king's man we are reading the movie adaptation the literature adaptation and in the previous episode, we talked about two actual movie adaptations of this story. And Moses there is fighting against oppression, defying the evil Pharaoh, killing the Egyptian man as he's beating a Hebrew. And none of it has anything to do, not with Moses, <laughs> nor the Pharaoh, nor the Egyptian. This is about Matityahu and the Maccabees. This is the original story. I'm definitely off the Maccabean coincidence bandwagon and I'm joining the machine. <laughs> it would make more sense for me that this is the word of God than that these stories are somehow coincidentally the same story. And these two stories remain one story downright to the pixel. For example, why in such a short story would it be so important for the writer to specifically emphasize and focus how Moses is making sure that his murderous action against the Egyptian man is not seen by anyone? He looks this way and that and then he hits him in the sand. That's weird. But <laughs> because it's another perfect mirroring. The crime by the Hellenizer... The Mityaven is specifically mentioned to have been done in front of everybody. So Moses Matityahu is made to stand in exact contrast to that abominable crime by the disloyal Hellenized Hebrew. The opposite of a crime committed in front of everybody is a righteous act committed when no one can see it. 
This is the level of identicality <laughs> that we're talking about. If I'll go down and explain every single word, how it fits exactly, perfectly, that would just be lists upon lists. And you are more than welcome to fact check me. Please. As if all this wasn't enough. Here comes... <laughs> The most telling part of all, how does Moses see his brothers? Ugh. ויצא ביום השני, והנה שני אנשים עיוורים ניצים. ויאמר לרשע, למה תכה And when he went out the second day, and saw two Hebrews quarreling, <laughs> he said to the one in the wrong, this is the translation, it's stupid. No. ויאמר לרשע. He said to the evil one, why change the wording? It says the evil one. It's about their beef with their evil brethren. So in the Exodus version of events, the series of events has been switched. It doesn't first get into conflict with an evil Hebrew and then kills the Egyptian man. No, first he's a hero and then the evil Hebrew is, is evil in contrast to that. And also, I'm not sure it's a good look for Moses, you know, immediately start eliminating his political opponents, Maccabee style. <laughs> He's going to do that a bit later. <laughs> so Moses, you know, he just wants to calm everybody. And he goes to the one who is evil and he ask, he's asking him, you know, so tenderly in the heat of the moment. Why are you hitting your brother? <laughs> This is so ridiculous. This is, you know, I can see the writer sweating <laughs> in his attempts to perform Matityahu apologetics. You see how he came to that guy? You know, in real life, he actually just slaughtered him right away. But, you know, somehow what he really did was, why are you hitting your brother? <laughs> Uh, look, the, the description in 1 Maccabees, chapter 2, verse 24 of this part, is just the best part of the two episodes. When he sees the Hellenizer stepping forward in front of everybody to desecrate the temple, doesn't say, why are you hitting your brother? Vayazu'u kiliotav, mishpat, vayarutz, vayishchateu He's, literally, his kidneys were sweating. <laughs> And his fury was rising as if in judgment. He ran, slaughtered him on the altar. Slaughtered is the translation to Ishchateu. But in Hebrew, Ishchateu, is much more violent than slaughter is in English. You can immediately see the blood going everywhere. But big studio executives <laughs> who issue bestsellers, they prefer to have less slaughtering of other Hebrews in their movies. You know, Hellenizers buy movie tickets too. So with the PG-13 version, he doesn't slaughter him on the altar. 
He merely asks him so kindly, Why are you hitting your brother? <laughs> On a serious note, this story that we're going over is a vicious political ad against their political enemies. It's a holy, divine, canonical, and vicious political attack ad. They're attacking their fellow Hebrews, who are inclined to be, you know, multicultural, and they're accusing them of treason. These pragmatics, basically globalists, who constantly conspire. And in one Maccabees, they seem to wield incredible power behind the scenes, sending tentacles everywhere, somehow succeeding, while at the same time being portrayed as weak and soft and degenerate. The Maccabeans despise these rich liberal elites. You know, the Maccabees themselves were elites, stinking rich as a royal family, as a ruling dynasty. Mm. But they relied on the popular support of the rural communities. Mm. Weird. And the Maccabees <laughs> described in their official history book the kind of liberal purge they carried out. And killing them was not enough. These pro-baby Maccabees took the babies of the Hellenizers and forcefully circumcised them. Little babies, little boys, teenagers, no matter their age. So the pro-baby political party was in fact the anti-baby political party. Color me surprised. So in case anyone had any qualms about their political methods, I guess they covered their religious backs <laughs> by canonizing their political position that these guys were the evil one. Hmm? At least the Maccabeans, they had a bottle to their barrel. They never said that their political enemies were running a cabal of Zeus-worshipping baby killers. <laughs> and God knows that for them that would have been a layup. Come on, they already had <laughs> a mass baby killing inside their story. It's so easy to blame them, just like write a little word. No, it's still, that was going too far for them. <laughs> and they're basically like the Taliban. So how does the Hebrew civil war begin in Exodus? No Hebrew blood has been spilled. Moses just wonders why his disloyal brothers are hitting their brothers. What do the disloyal Hebrews have to say about that? And the man replied, Who made you judge and ruler over us? Are you planning on killing me as you killed the Egyptian man? Yes, he is planning to kill you. Run! Run for your lives! <laughs> this is such cry-bullying and projection. <laughs> and again to the Taliban uh, comparison, and I want to thank uh, tribe member Andy for that. This is like the US 
retreating from Afghanistan and the Taliban going on a rampage, killing their Americanized brethren. These elites that used to support and feel at home more with the evil empire then continue their own traditions consecrated in a holy book. And for the conclusion of the story, we had one remaining question. Why would the pharaoh want to kill his daughter's baby, his daughter's child, Moses, just because he killed an Egyptian man? Does that question even sound relevant now? It has nothing to do with Moses or the pharaoh. And then the story concludes, Moses fleeing to Modin. Sorry, Moses fleeing to Midian. So what did we learn in this episode? We learned that the person academics call the J-source of Exodus, and we call our second editor of Exodus, is in fact a Maccabean editor. Editing the book of Exodus on the behest of the Maccabean regime, spreading their propaganda in the holy book, once they and their hawkish allies secured their hold on the land, the government, and the religious institutions. We learn that there is one simple code to understand everything our Maccabean editor writes in Exodus, and that this code is a Maccabean perspective. Once we read his stories through the Maccabean lens, the Maccabean subtext emerges. They were adding their own stories to their holy book. What could be more natural than that? And as we'll see in the next episode, all the political, geopolitical, economic and religious stars aligned to make this humongous project to come into the world. And we have the result of this project right here with us. Our version of Exodus is the Maccabean edition of the book. Once we peel it over piece by piece, we get to know the first edition, which we'll call the Persian edition, because it was canonized under Persian rule. So a Persian edition, and then a Maccabean edition. And I, I'm not sure I've made it clear up to now, but claiming that there was a first editor, a second editor, is not a controversial statement in itself. This is widely agreed by 100% of the scholars that Exodus was edited and re-edited and edited again. And if you're still holding out hope for a Maccabean coincidence, <laughs> and you feel like crying out to your fellow believers, those who are zealous for the Torah and remember the Maccabean coincidence, come with me. So let me temper <laughs> your enthusiasm because you have an uphill battle ahead. And I'm not talking about the Modin type of heels, because our Maccabean editor, and that's how we're going to call him from now on, 
he keeps on Micah being all the way through the chapters of Exodus, leaving very visible Maccabean fingerprints all over, and some more identical stories. And you too can set out on a Maccabean expedition. Not in Judean Maccabean times, now. That's boring. Set out on a Maccabean expedition in ancient Egypt. <laughs> I'll leave a link in the description to the website that I use to read Exodus clearly marked according to the different quote-unquote sources. And follow our Maccabean editor by following the J source. Or you can follow the trail of blood <laughs> that our Maccabean editor leaves all over his stories. Ever wondered why Moses suddenly out of nowhere reacts in violent anger? Cross-check to see if he is the J-source of Exodus. This Moses is angry and violent because the Maccabees shaped Moses according to their values. I mean, does any of this sound outrageous? It's the most commonsensical thing ever. The writers of the text shape the story and the characters according to how they see the world. So if we can find out who wrote it, a person or a faction, then we can better understand the texts that they wrote. Sounds pretty basic to me. Here's a taste. This glorious call to arms by Matityahu, all who are zealot for the Torah and remember the covenant, was adapted in Exodus to Moses crying out, to his fellow zealots, all who are loyal for the Torah, come with me, me la Torah elai, and then massacred thousands of disloyal Hebrews, Maccabean style. <laughs> and I can't jump ahead right now, four books ahead to the book of Joshua, but reading what scholars say about the incredible similarities between the purge by Yehuda Maccabee and the purge by Joshua and how Yehuda the Maccabee fashioned himself as a sort of quote-unquote modern-day Joshua, directly comparing his rampage to the rampage of Joshua, makes me think that there was a lot of Maccabean editing done to that book as well. So I think... We better all jump off the coincidence bandwagon and concede that this has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. So now about my storyology machine. I've gotten some questions about it, so here it is. It's basically made of two components. One component is a search engine. It scans texts and can easily identify them. And the other component is basically a huge database filtered according to topics like a historical period, historical people, historical trends. And when you combine them both, you have a storyology machine. Most people have both 
of those components separately. Maybe they just don't use them as a storage machine. The search engine, most people use Google. We don't have to use Google. You could use uh, other search engines. And the database filtered across, uh, filtered according to topics, uh, it's called Wikipedia. So I was just uh, minding my own business, sitting on the couch, trying to figure out where our second editor lived. I knew he lived after the year 300 BCE. And as I was Wikipediaing <laughs> about, <laughs> about Hebrew history, I got to the murder, murder Modin story. And I was like, oh, this can't be a coincidence. <laughs> and then I went to a couple of months of research and then everything around that not coincidence just magically <laughs> fit in a way that I obviously could not foresee. <laughs> so we all have a storyology machine at home. Maybe we should buy sh some storyology machines <laughs> for universities, professors and researchers who are researching the Bible. I think that is very, very useful. It has been proven useful beyond a reasonable doubt. And even though the storyology machine is, is free, I did have to purchase the book One Maccabees, an excellent version, I'll talk about it next time. And I do put an immense amount of time into this project. If you're passionate about the Bible, and you feel that this podcast gives an added value to your passion, then supporting it would certainly, definitely help in making sure that this project can continue because we have barely scratched the surface, not only for the entire Bible, but even for Exodus. So much more cool shit is coming. Absolutely wild. So if that's something up your alley, I'm looking forward to seeing you on patreon.com slash biblical proportions. There's a link in the show notes. If you know someone who you think would enjoy this kind of podcast, please let them know. On the next episode, we'll fact check one Maccabee's historical account of the events we've gone over. So if you'd like to read ahead and be prepared, I want to I thank tribe member Jeffrey for, the, for that idea that I can tell you ahead of time what to read if you want to come, uh, if you want to listen prepared. So I leave in the show notes a link to a version of One Maccabee and also links to some general Wikipedia articles. If you want to do a deep dive, then, you know, we all have a search engine for that. That's just like to get a general idea of this period. Thank you everybody for listening. Shukran. I'm Gil Kidron, and I'll see you next time, hopefully next week.